Well, last week we saw in verses 7 to 10 the source of God's love. We considered that God's love was like a reservoir that we draw from, that love is not drawn from ourselves, it's not drawn from our emotions, it's not drawn from our will, but it's drawn from God. He is the source of love. And we saw that last week God also demonstrates his love. He expresses his love and he's done this ultimately in the death of the Lord Jesus. We saw at the end of verse 10 that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so this week what I want to do is really finish off this section up until verse 21 that we started last week and consider what does it mean for God's love to affect us? We saw last week that we are lost without God's love and a saviour. And we need the death of the Lord Jesus. We need the love of the Lord Jesus. And so I want to pick it up there in verse 12. Why don't you open up to 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. I'm going to pick it up there in verse 12. Verse 12, we see there that the Apostle John writes that no one has ever seen God. Here, John is picking up on this idea that we are to imitate God in his love, but if no one has ever seen God, how can you imitate his love? I don't know if uh, you've been to the occasional Anzac Day service or perhaps another military parade. Often there's a flyover of uh, military planes, fighter jets usually. And it's, uh, you know, it's all very spectacular. There's a rumble of the deep turbines as they go over and they're there just for a moment, a flash, a little bit of spectacle. The reality of God's love is that It's not a flyover. It's not something just to look at. As significant as the death of the Lord Jesus is, and as much as we explored that last week, the love that God has demonstrated and shown to us in the Lord Jesus is not some flyover of God's love. It's not something that we can be simply content with spectating at. Now, God's love is something that draws us in. It's something that involves us. And really, this is what this whole section is about. It's about how the demonstration of God's love to us in the Lord Jesus grabs us, involves us, and changes us. What we're going to see is how we learn to love. How we learn to love by looking at God's love. We're going to see that the fact of his love becomes our incentive for love. The fact of his love becomes our incentive for love. And so we're going to see the consequence of God's love tonight. We're going to see the motivation of God's love. We're going to see the state of God's love. We're going to see the confidence that his love gives us. And finally, the completion of God's love.
God's love has a consequence in our life. The first consequence we see there is in verse 11. Have a look at verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. The reality is that God has loved us, verse 10, through the death of the Lord Jesus. And now John starts to build on this. Not content with the flyover of God's love on the cross, he's drawing these readers into the love of God. Since God loved us, there's a response that's required, a reflection of love that's required from us there in verse 11. Now, if you've been around um, Christian circles... The fact that Christians ought to love is not something that's probably new to you or surprising. But what I want to say this afternoon is I think this is very helpful for us to consider the motivation for our love because there's often two places that we are motivated in terms of our love. We can love out of one or two places. One place is a place of need And the other is a place of abundance. Because one of the realities is, as a human being, we are needy. Everyone needs love. In fact, this is what sets us apart from all the other creatures. Uh, Aside, uh, apart from, uh, sets us apart from animals. Is humanity's necessity of love. We all need to be loved. And so that's why we as humans from a very early age develop a sensitivity to love and to being loved. Because if, if we need love as humans, we want to know where to find it. We want to know who can give it to us. And so we develop this radar for love. And we develop this game in our minds, this game of calculation. It's the calculation that goes something like this. I need to feel loved. And so I wonder, is that person going to love me? If I love them, are they going to reciprocate? Are they going to return the love that I have shown them? And we do the calculation, we do it. We, we think, how much have I loved this person? And the amount of input is generally equal to the expectation of return of love. And you know this, we scan our relationships. We're conscious of how much we've given to someone else in terms of love and we're conscious of how much They've returned. And we hope that there's some kind of equilibrium in the amount that we're giving and in the amount that's being returned. This is love out of need. And often isn't really love. Because what's the primary motivation for love, if we think about it in terms of a calculation? Well, the primary primary motivation for love at that point is my need. There's another motivation for love. It's not from my need, as right and good as it is for us to have needs of love as human people, but 
John wants to see us, wants to show us here that there's a deeper motivation. That there's a deeper motivation. There's a man called Augustine, and he was a Christian in the 4th and 5th century. And he was a man uh, from his mid-teens to his early 20s who was in pursuit of love. He would seek love wherever he could find it, and he found it in all the usual spots. But he, become, he became so, um, so downcast and disappointed with his pursuit of love. And he says this as he writes in his book, The Confessions. He says, I loved not yet, yet I loved to love. I sought what I might love in love with loving. See, what he's saying there is that he was so pursuing love, but it it never quite fulfilled him. His pursuit of love and his desire to be loved never filled him sufficiently. And so Augustine loved out of a place of need. He loved for so long out of his desire to be loved. He couldn't love to give. He only loved to get. And so before he becomes a Christian, he says that God was not love for him. Love was his God. And he'd do anything to serve the God of love, to get love from people. But then he undergoes this incredible transformation in his life where he discovers God himself as the source of love. And he changes the whole way he thinks about his life. And rather his whole mission in life is to draw love from others. When he becomes a Christian, he realises that his goal, his purpose in life is not to try and get love from others. His purpose in life is to give love to others. Because when we're anchored in the love of God, there we're anchored in the source of love, in his uncontingent love. You see, one of the beautiful things that we're reminded of as Christians is God doesn't operate like we do. He's not playing the calculation game. He's not watching us to see how much we love him and then providing a measured return in his love for us. No, we're reminded back in verse 10 that he has declared his love to us in the death of the Lord Jesus fully and finally and ultimately. And so when we're connected with that love, we don't need to love in a calculated, dependent and contingent way. We're actually free to love from the source of love. Secondly, When we realise this, it also not only changes our lives, but it also changes the life of our community. Have a look there in verse 12. Because God's love creates a living and loving person, but it goes further than that. And you see there that the language of verse 12 is one of a community of loving people. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete. Notice the language there that John uses. John could have said 
something like, no one has ever seen God, but if I love another person, that's not the language that John uses. See, if we love one another, see the language there is one that has an expectation that there's mutual, that's a mutual matrix of loving relationships that Christians participate in. God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Have you ever wondered what the goal of the cross is? Why Jesus died? The goal of the cross and the death of the Lord Jesus is not so you can feel loved. Now that is a consequence of the cross and the cross is the declaration of God's love for you and you ought to feel loved and know that you're loved by the death of the Lord Jesus. But that is not the goal. That is not the ultimate purpose of the death of the Lord Jesus. The ultimate purpose of his atoning sacrifice is the creation of a loving community. A loving community of his church. And that's why there in verse 12, I think, God's love is made complete. God's love is not made complete when we merely feel loved, as important as that is. God's love is made complete when, verse 12, when we're expressing love to one another. See how radical this is in terms of helping us see that the cross of the Lord Jesus is not a flyover. It's not just something to behold as a spectacular event. When we understand it as John understands it, we start to see here it's a radical reorientation of our whole lives. Because we're brought into, secondly, this state of love. Have a look there in verse 19. It says, We love because he first loved us. You notice there in verse 19 that this is not a command. If you have a look back in verse 7, there is a command to love. Dear friends, let us love one another. But here in verse 19, John is speaking about the characteristic of Christian maturity. That we are brought up into this state of love. We love because he first loved us. Behind that statement there in verse 19 is this initiative of God. This way in which God has entered our lives. This way in which God has come into our lives. He's taken hold of us. A spiritual hijacking, if you like. There we are, living lives separate from God, apart from him, possibly happy without him, or thinking that we are at least. And as he comes into our lives, he comes to change who we are and to reorder our lives. To be taken, uh, to, to become a Christian is be, to be taken over by the love of God. And when we are, thirdly, when this love that God has demonstrated to us in the Lord Jesus, starts to reorder our lives and we start to express that love to one another, it builds within us a confidence. And that's what John wants his readers to have. We've seen in this letter that one of the goals and perhaps the main purpose of this letter is to encourage 
these Christian readers in their confidence in their Christian faith. Have a look there in verse 17. In this way, love is made complete amongst us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. The word there, confidence, is sometimes translated as boldness. It's the kind of confidence or, um, or boldness that if you're in London and you just, you know, duck by Buckingham Palace, you might knock on the door and see if the Queen wants to have a cup of tea with you. That's the kind of confidence that's being spoken of here. Um, and now I know some of us have confident personalities, this is not the kind of confidence that's being spoken of here. It's not so we can be more outgoing as people because I think one of the realities is we all, whether we appear confident or not, carry around with us deep fears, many fears, fears of our future, about the future or of other people. But God's love builds a confidence and it builds a confidence in a specific way. We've seen so far in the letter that God's confidence helps us that, uh, sorry, we've seen so far that our confidence comes in the coming of Christ. Back if you look in chapter 2, verse 28, when he appeared, we may be confident, when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before his coming. We have a confidence in the face of Jesus' return that we have nothing to fear and nothing to hide. We have a confidence in prayer back in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. That if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. We have a confidence to come before our God in prayer. But here in chapter 4, the confidence that we have is on the day of judgment. Now, the concept of judgment is not something that's popular in our modern world. But the scriptures are quite clear. The Bible's quite unashamed in speaking about the reality of God's judgment. Um, we might be a little awkward in speaking about the reality of God's judgment, but the Bible's not. We see this all throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament. Um, in those last chapters of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 1, says, Surely the day is coming with all the arrogant and all the evildoers do- will be stubble. Why will they be stubble? Because God's judgment is coming. And his judgment will set evil on fire. There is a day of judgment, John is saying. But we've got a lot of apprehension when it comes to this concept of judgment. In fact, you know, we have a negative connotation uh, if someone says to, to you that, or, or someone claims that that person is judgy, it's a negative connotation, isn't it? Um, our world has done away with this concept of judgment because we don't like the idea of judgmentalism. But the question to ask is, as our world has steered away from the concept of judgment... Has our world become less judgmental? I don't think so. I mean, if you think about it, okay, at least, say, say the Ten Commandments. Now, as, as, um, as many people would 
just be revolted by the idea of the Ten Commandments being the law for which our land was governed. At least if the Ten Commandments were the law that governed our land, at least we would all have a uniform standard by which to measure ourselves. See, the problem now is as much as we've wanted to do away with God because we think God causes judgmentalism, what we've actually done is we've created a world where everyone sets a standard. Every person sets the standard for everyone else. And so we're in this kind of world where there's these moving targets of standard. Many people are afraid to speak in public about certain issues because of a word choice that they might use and the way in which a word choice that someone might use um, could be seen as, um, as a form of vilification. See, the reality is, is that as we've moved away from the judgment of God, we've created a judgmentalism within one another. But judgment is intrinsic to meaning. And the very fact that our lives are to be judged actually tells us that there's something valuable about our lives. And it tells us that there's something valuable about the lives of others that will be judged. And yet we're anxious and we are fearful. We're anxious and we're fearful when it comes to judgment because we know that if our lives were to be examined, if our lives were to be scrutinised for every moment, every thought, every action and every word, there's a fear. There's a fear. But what the Bible does is not do away with judgment because of our fear. It actually holds those two things together. Because what if we could keep the idea of judgment that um, protected people's value, but also could deal with the fear? And this is exactly what John is saying. This is what the gospel of the Lord Jesus does. It preserves the notion of judgment, but it also deals with the problem of fear. It deals with the problem of fear because in the gospel of Lord Jesus, there is no need to fear shame or the terror of our record, of our lives being presented before us because we can have confidence. We can have confidence in the death of the Lord Jesus that that judgment has occurred. The judgment that we ought to bear, the judgment that we ought to face, has already been faced back in verse 10 in the atoning death of the Lord Jesus. And so that means that we can have a confidence even in the face of our own inadequacies because, verse 16, we know and rely on the love that God has for us. See, often when we think about our lives, and when we think about what John is saying here, we, we consider our inadequacies. We, we see that we have failed in so many ways. 
to love others. But here's the reality. Here's the verdict that matters. It's not how we feel about ourselves that's most important. What's most important is how God feels towards us. Our verdict of ourselves is not the ultimate verdict. God's verdict is. And so verse 16, we know and rely on the love that God has for us. That's his verdict upon us. That's our confidence. And that's our certainty. Because whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Jesus tells this, um, sorry, Mark tells this wonderful story in Mark chapter 5 of Jesus in the storm. And there in the storm, he's in a boat with his disciples. The waves come up. The disciples are fearful. Jesus calms the storm. But there, after the storm has been calmed, the disciples are still scared. They're not scared of the storm anymore. They're scared of the one, they're fearful of the one who has calmed the storm. See, Jesus' death for us on the cross has dealt with the judgment of God's, the storm of God's judgment. And so God's love can grow within us because there's not that fear of judgment. There's not that fear of judgment. We have the opportunity to look to the cross and to abide in his love and to have the confidence that his love gives us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that you've shown us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his cross. And we thank you for the way in which you demonstrated your love for us. We pray, Father, that it would not be fear that rules our lives, but we pray it would be your love. And we pray, Father, this love would be demonstrated to our brothers and sisters in this church and in our community. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.